Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Critically Acclaimed, the movie review podcast where I talk like this and also there's an explosion. Ah, there it goes. Yeah. My name is William Bibiani. I am a critic. Everybody calls me Bibbs. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I don't talk like this. You just did. I guess I do. Uh, my name is Whitney Seibold. I, too, am a film critic. Cool. I, I could do a voice, but I'm not gonna. Yeah, are you gonna do a, uh, are you gonna do a spooky... Halloween nickname on Twitter this season? Uh, I've, I've been trying to think of one. Okay. Yeah. You should, uh, everyone should tweet Whitney Seibold at Whitney Seibold was, and give them your suggestions. I was going to change my name to Whitney Gorman, but I saw somebody else had taken that idea already, ah, so yeah, I can't, can't really do that. No, you can't do something that's been taken. Right what now, I'm, uh, I think I'm William Bibiani versus Lake Placid. I like that. Yeah. Uh, it's not bad. It's not but bad. My Still to this day, one of my favorites uh, was uh, our, our friend and colleague, Mr. Dave White. Yeah. Uh, changed his name to I Spit on Your Dave. All-time classic. I, yeah. Can, yeah. I can't really, I can't compete with that. Every year people tell me, like, you should do the Bibs of Duke. And I'm like, I already did that one. Yeah. I don't want to, I don't want to do the same one every year. Right. It's not, it's not like a Simpsons Halloween special where it's always James Hell Brooks. Like, right. James. You've been doing this for 30 goddamn horror specials. <laughs> Mix it up a smidge. I've already done Whitney Seibold full sequence, and uh, that was a good one. Yeah, I need need, need need to sort of delve into sort of the more mm-hmm. obscure corners because the, the secret to those little handles, just yeah. like a, a secret to a good Halloween costume, is it needs to be uh, really appealing to one percent of the viewers. Yeah, and completely unknown to the other ninety nine percent. Everyone else needs to know you're wearing a costume or know mm-hmm. that you have a Twitter handle, but only the one percent will not only recognize it, but think that's the coolest thing they've ever heard mm. in their lives. You're doing it for that 1% of the, the viewers. If you can do that, <laughs> you are a god. Yep. Like, anyone can just, like, dress as Jack Sparrow or some shit, yeah, but if you yeah. can... How many, how many Harley Quinns are we going to get this year? Yeah, probably a lot, but, like, no, you want to you make it special. Mm. Anyway, this... Uh, it, it, that, and that's our, our first foray into the Halloween conversation. That's true, and we're going to talk a little bit about uh, a lot of uh, Halloween things. In, in October. But right now, uh, well, actually, we're going to do some horror films. Yeah, I know. Right? I thought you were segueing into that. Yeah. Instead, you were saying the exact opposite. Anyway, uh, this <laughs> week on Critically Acclaimed, we're going to be reviewing the new releases Malignant, Kate, and The Voyeurs. Uh, it's actually a pretty light week for us. It's only three films. Uh, and let's get started with a movie that has everybody talking. And we're going to have to avoid some spoilers here because this movie gets a little nutty. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about James Wan's new film, Malignant. Well, we were discussing last week that James Wan is like this gigantic hit maker. He might yeah. be the biggest hit maker film director of his generation. Uh, uh, because... of, the, of the 21st century, I think. At least, uh, there's a lot of people who've made a hit film, mm. but like everything James Wan touches, unless it's like Dead Silence yeah, or, like... Or, or, or was a Death Sentence. Like, he's in like a couple of little things mm. at the beginning of his career, but Saw, giant hit franchise. Yeah. The Conjuring, giant hit franchise. Insidious, giant hit franchise. Aquaman, made a billion dollars. Oh. His Fast and Furious movie, Made a billion, billion dollars. dollars. 
he's got his finger on the pulse of something. Well, what he has is, and we talked about this when we were reviewing uh, on Critically Reclaimed, the film Turkey Shoot, the Brian Trenchard Smith film. Yeah. Uh, which is exploitation, And... Uh, I think what I said at the time... Which is to say an Australian exploitation Australian exploitation movie of a a specific era, like uh, from the very late 60s through the very late 80s, about like that 20-year period. Give or take. Um, uh, And Australian exploitation movies have a really good knack, and I don't know what it is about Australian filmmakers that they were able to tap into this with a higher frequency than American filmmakers, uh, exactly what exploitation audiences want to see. Mm-hmm. They want to see cars exploding. They want to see a lot of gore. They want to see a lot of nudity. They just want a, a lot of wild, crazy things. But I think it's also a matter of a tone. You want to mm. be able to take it seriously enough that you care, mm. but also you want the audience to know that we're just here to see stupid we're, shit. Yeah, we're, we know you're yeah. here to see stupid shit. And yeah. Yeah, so let's let's watch Tricky Shoot. There, It's prison abuse and violence and nudity and for some reason a wolf man. Like, we're um, just going to throw all that in there. To be fair, to be fair, we've had this corrected. Mm. It's not a wolf man, it's a cat man. Excuse me, cat man. There's a cat in this, like, <laughs> evil futuristic fascist prison most dangerous game knockoff movie. And he just pops up halfway through the Tur- movie and nobody talks <laughs> about it. Apparently that's just a thing now. Turkey Shoot is excellent, by yeah. the way. I, yeah. I really Fucked love it. Oh, definitely fucked, fucked up. up. Not for everybody, but mm. they're very, very entertaining. Uh, it, it, as as fucked up exploitation movies go, Turkey Shoot is excellent. Uh, you know what else is excellent is Malignant. Yeah. Uh, Malignant, and I, I bring up exploitation because James Wan is an Australian filmmaker, mm-hmm. and he t- taps into, I think, a certain kind of sensibility that um, American audiences are really digging on, and that he likes to put a lot of wild stuff in his movies. He's a good match for the Furious franchise. You've seen his Aquaman movie? Everybody saw his Aquaman movie. It's fucking that weird. weird. It's he, put, like, he made Julie Andrews a giant Lovecraftian god-like <laughs> subterranean Julie, monster. Yeah, Julie Andrews plays Cthulhu, essentially. And, yeah, and that and takes show, a certain kind of genius, And honestly. she shows up right when the dolphins were about to beat the crabs or whatever the <laughs> hell is going on in that movie. <laughs> I have a lot of respect for James Wan. I yeah. really, really do. I think he's he's not every one of his movies is is equal. There's some I like a lot more than others, but he's got a very particular. He's very, very good at taking disparate influences and turning them into something kind of fresh. Like if you look at something like sometimes he'll do a movie like Insidious, mm. which is basically his riff on Poltergeist, more or less. But mm. he will also then spin that out. Into Insidious 2, which is an entirely different kind of freak show. <laughs> All right. He'll do The Conjuring, which is like super duper classy. But then Saw is pure fucking scuzz. Mm. And it's, I love him for it, that. It's super slimy. And the story yeah. in the Saw, if you can follow the story in the Saw movies, you you de- deserve a membership in Mensa because those things are impossible to follow. Yeah, they're there's really... flashbacks really... within flashbacks. They, they make sense, but there's, it's the most bizarrely complicated horror franchise mm. I've ever seen. Uh, so here he is with Malignant, which uh, a lot of people are seeing as sort of his carte blanche after the big hit of Aquaman, because Aquaman yeah. made a billion dollars. The studio can't say no, so, I can do whatever the fuck I want, provided uh, I make a relatively inexpensive horror movie. So he made a movie which uh, draws a lot of influences from a lot of 
really kooky horror films that I love. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's, you know, flavors of basket case, uh, for the Frank Henenlotter film in here. There's a uh, maniac cop two in here. <laughs> uh, there's a, there's a, there's a lot of Italian horror. Um, I think a lot of Lucio Fulci in particular. Yeah. Um, uh, a lot of people have made a big deal about how this is his giallo influenced, uh, uh, horror movie. Kind of. Here's, here's the it, thing with it, the, ish. There's like a, giallo. Element. Here's the thing with the giallo. A giallo is actually as a subgenre mm. is, a little specific, but it got kind of when it was introduced to America, it got kind of lumped in with Italian supernatural horror because they share a lot of stylistic similarities. A giallo, very specifically, is uh, an ultra gory detective story. Basically, yeah, they're, they're murder mysteries. Yeah, is what they are. They're murder mysteries, but the murders are super fucked up and gory. Mm. Uh, the stories don't necessarily have to make a lot of sense, but. Unlike American slasher movies where the protagonists are usually hapless people who don't know what's going on, there's usually someone actively trying to solve a mystery, and the mystery is usually f- uh, stopping a serial killer, and the serial killer is doing something really operatically grand with their kills. Um, they are very typically very lavish, uh, very over-the-top. And I love them. Uh, however, a lot of them are quite bad. A lot of them are quite bad, but a lot of them are good for being quite bad. Yeah. Um, they take place in this sort of because they take place in this very operatic, over the top universe. You can forgive things that in other movies would be bad, and just kind of fall under this sort of dreamlike spell well, I, that they that they have. And and that's actually a, a dreamlike is a good way to describe a lot of these uh, murder mysteries because the again again to repeat myself. The stories make no sense. Often they uh, yeah. they don't really lock together in any kind of logical way. Mm-hmm. They kind of do in a dream logic sort of mm-hmm. way. A character will show up in a location mm-hmm. and you don't know why they're there or how they got there. Yeah. Uh, the killer will show up like floating outside of windows and stuff. Like things don't yeah. quite make sense in a lot of giallos. Yeah, or a jelly is actually or the jelly, correct. Excuse uh, me, uh, plural. It, but I'm um, using well, English variation. I'm That's, just trying to educate people because bad. I know because I've noticed a lot of people have been talking about the genre lately. And listen, I know it's all very well intentioned, and I know that we're all mm. sort of talking about influence. But just for the record, here's basically what it, what it boils down to. But um, a lot of people were introduced to that subgenre while they were simultaneously being introduced to films like, say, Suspiria. Mm. Dario Argento made his most of his career making uh, Gialli films, uh, but he also made Suspiria, which has flavors of a giallo, but is actually a supernatural horror film which doesn't actually fit a lot of the mm. genre elements of it, except for the operatic nature and all the kills. Um, some movies blur that line really, really well. Case in point, Dario Argento's Phenomena. Mm-hmm. Uh, where uh, Jennifer Connelly stars as a young girl at a boarding school uh, who can talk to insects and teams up with a criminologist. Isn't that Donald Pleasance? I don't remember. I think it's, it's been a while Pleasance. since I've seen Phenomena. Uh, I, I saw the American Cut, though, which is called Creepers. I've never and, saw the American and Cut. That's the only cut I've seen. Actually, I haven't seen Phenomena, so okay. I can't speak to it. Really. It is Donald Pleasance, by no. the way. Okay, so Jennifer Connelly plays a, uh, a, boarding, a girl at a boarding school. She can talk to insects. He teams up with a criminologist who is trying to solve a series of brutal murders. Uh, but here's the thing. Uh, she can talk to insects, so it's got this supernatural element to it. And uh, when you find out who the killer is in Phenomena, uh, buckle up! Because <laughs> that shit gets weird. 
If you uh, and when you uh, learn uh, sort of details about the killer and Malignant as well, yeah, that's Ooh. when it. That's when the fun begins. Um, yeah, that's when everything gets nuts. But so, I, I look at Malignant. You saw a lot of exploitation. Uh, Me, I saw a lot of Lucio Fulci. Okay, uh, Lucio Fulci is a filmmaker, a contemporary with Argento. Argento seems to be better known in America. That's why I brought him up. But um, Fulci doesn't give a shit about your story mm. he doesn't really care and a lot of his movies are basically just a cacophony of different weird ideas that he had uh, a movie i'm very very fond of but it makes no sense whatsoever is house by the cemetery you ever see that no a bunch of people a family moves into a house by the cemetery and there mm. may be That's a not serial clever <laughs> it's well it may be there may be a serial killer or a ghost or a frankenstein monster or a cannibal living in their basement or some combination of all of those and the movie can't quite decide but it is <laughs> legit terrifying uh but yeah the rules do not apply sometimes and yeah i think that's something that's happened here i think there, uh he's trying to lure us into the idea that we're watching a straight up serial killer thing but that's not what we're doing uh, at all. No. Um, anyway, a, a, a brief nod at the plot. Um, Annabelle Wallace plays a character named Maddie or Madison, who uh, is at the opening of the movie in a, an abusive relationship. Mm-hmm. And uh, she is physically abused by her husband. She's pregnant. Uh-huh. And uh, she goes to bed with a bleeding head because yep. he slammed her head against a wall. And uh, then while she's asleep at night, some mysterious ghostly thing creeps around the house and kills the abusive husband. Yep. Uh, she, and attacks her. And Oh, that's right. And attacks her as well. She wakes up the next morning. She has miscarried. She is, uh, her head is still bleeding. She's completely destitute. Yeah. Her uh, sister brings her back to her house. And uh, that's when she starts having these really bizarre visions of that same ghostly figure appearing in other people's houses and murdering them as well. Yeah. And they're, they're realized through these CGI sequences where the, like her background melts around her and changes into yeah. wherever the murder is occurring. And I love, I love who, oh, who plays the sister in this movie? She's so damn funny. Oh, um, um, ah, oh God. Um, hang on, hang on, hang on. Nicole uh, Brianna White. Mm. Uh, I hope I'm pronouncing that right. Um, She's, she's... No, Nicole Brown White um, was the cop. Oh, you're right. I'm sorry. She was the cop. Sorry. It's a, it's a uh, Jacqueline... Matt, Maddie Hassan is the sister. Maddie Hassan. Okay, thank you. Sorry. My apologies. I was looking at a list right. of names. Uh, Maddie Hassan plays her sister. Nicole uh, Brianna White is also very, very good in this movie. But um, Maddie Hassan plays the sister, and she throws herself into the, like, plucky murder mystery bit so hard, where she was just like, okay, I know what you're thinking, cops. My sister is having visions of a serial killer. Now you're thinking, okay, she did it. Or mm-hmm. she has a psychic link with the killer <laughs> and we can use these psychic visions to solve the crime. And the cops are like, that's not a thing. That's not yeah. a thing. Oh, I know you. I, I was in a TV show once no, and I know you cops. Consult psychics <laughs> yeah, to, to, for missing you, persons cases. No, we, no we, that's we not a thing. We don't do that. Or <laughs> this we is can a- do it now. <laughs> This all takes place in Seattle, so at least there's like an organic reason for everything to be hazy and rainy all the time. <laughs> it the, rains nine months out of the year yeah, in they, Seattle. They do they pull that shit in LA based films all the time. It's like, yeah. oh no, everything's raining all of a sudden. Oh, it must be that one week in January when it yeah. rains here in LA. We get approximately it, five days of rainfall a year. It's horrible here. <laughs> we get a little more than that. We're yeah. exaggerating a bit, but yeah, it's lately. 
I've seen a lot of LA movies where it's like just suddenly well the best <laughs> bursts into rain. The best part is, and they don't do this anymore. I think it's because uh, it streets film a little differently on digital. But um, it used to be that before they would do an exterior shot in a movie, uh, they would spray the ground down with mm. water so that it would it would film more interestingly. You get like lots of well, nice reflections and things. It, it was and, it was a lighting thing. Yeah. It's difficult to light huge areas. You make the street reflective. All of a sudden, you yeah. light it with fewer lights. Yeah, exactly. So, uh, but the gag is, it means everywhere you go in a movie, it means it's always just rained. And, but they keep doing this in places like New Mexico or California, where it almost never rains. The streets are all wet for some reason. Yeah, it's really weird. Uh, and anyway, things. Uh, the sister, by the way, she's an actress, so there's like, that she talks about being an actress or blowing yeah. off auditions. And uh, it's not long before Maddie reveals to her little sister that, uh, in fact, she was adopted. Mm-hmm. She knows that she was adopted. And, and she does so uh, with this amazing sting music. Like, <laughs> like Matt, I need, to, I need to sit you down. Uh, I was adopted. Boom, boom, boom. It's like a boom. soap opera. Like, yeah. Holy and, uh, shit, what? Me- meanwhile, the ghostly figure ha- uh, is clearly some sort of like psychic monster because it can only communicate through radios and speakers that are nearby. Yeah, so now we've got so now we've got tinges of shocker. Yeah, just because <laughs> and uh the the monster has kidnapped somebody and is storing it in in its weird attic somewhere. Yeah. Uh and that's all I'm going to say about the plot for now. Yeah. Because there's going to be a few twists and turns later on. Some pretty wild ones, in fact. Oh, yeah. The last act of Malignant is completely bonkers. And I will say this. It explodes into some pretty wild violence, which I just love. I will say this for Malignant. I think that I I picked up on where it was going pretty early. In terms of the actual twist. In terms of, like, here's what's actually going on. Uh, I think you know where it's going, more or less, if you're paying close attention or you're familiar with this kind of genre cinema. You can kind of see where we're headed. You will not see how we get there <laughs> and what they do afterwards. This would be like at the end of Psycho, like you found out like, ah, oh, cool. Uh, Norman Bates has been, is actually his own mother. And also he's been, uh, he, he's been laying eggs in everybody this entire time. And, and those eggs wake up and start taking over the government. That doesn't happen to Malignant, but that would be weird if that happened, right? That would be like a couple of steps too far, but also fascinating. And you kind of want to see that movie. That's Malignant. It goes a couple of steps too far, but James Wan leans into it hard. Mm. He is completely unashamed of how fucking weird this movie is. And there is something so incredibly exciting and refreshing. You think about a lot of the classic weird horror movies. Mm. Uh, Some stuff we sometimes take for granted now, like Reanimator or the Evil Dead movies or uh, uh, Dead Alive. The first time you see a movie like that, you're saying to yourself, this is really fucking weird. Someone came up with this. So Someone said, hey, wild, yeah. hey, let's turn this into a movie. Do that, you have a couple of million dollars you want to uh, spend on this? And I, I then they did. Uh, it, and it was fine. It's definitely telling that you're comparing Malignant to films like Dead Alive and The Reanimator. And uh, you know, I already compared it to, to Maniac Cop 2 and Basket Case. Uh these are all sort of wild cult movies that attract a, a horror audience that 
like that kind of violent shit. And James Wan, I think, is another one of those people mm-hmm. who has, was weaned on those types of films. Uh, but he can be classy if he wants to, but he doesn't always want to. He doesn't always want to. And uh, this is a case of him clearly being influenced by those things without having to, to goddamn quote them all the time. Yeah. He's not giving direct references or giving winks to the people who might have seen Maniac Cop 2. Yeah. He's just clearly clearly loves a movie like that and is making a movie in that vein. Yeah. Uh, and I appreciate that sort of homage rather than something direct. Yeah. Uh, the difference between James Wan and someone like Edgar Wright who wants you to know what, what the direct influences are. Uh, it, it's, I mean, this is destined to be cult hit. Uh, yeah. It's already being talked about a lot, at least in sort of the social media circles where I run. Uh, and... It, it's even gotten to the point where my wife and I, who watched it together, like sort of sneak up on each other and just go malignant. Uh, <laughs> I love this. Uh, One thing I love about this is this is the kind of movie. This movie went uh, to. It's in theaters. I, I hear it's not doing great, but who's who's, who's surprised? Uh, but it's also on HBO Max. A lot of people are watching it there. This is the kind of horror movie. That, generally speaking, if it comes out in theaters, a lot of critics will review it and go, we don't get it. No stars. And then, uh, uh, you know, it doesn't do great in the theaters. And then everyone kind of writes it off. And then a couple of years later, there starts being articles about them in, like, you know, Dread Central or Bloody Disgusting or Fangoria Mm -hmm. about how we were really too harsh on Malignant. And how Malignant is actually, like, super strange and interesting. Mm. And maybe it's time to bring Malignant its cult audience. But what's cool about it is because it's on home video now, we can skip that middle part. That's true. We don't have to wait for that. that... Yeah. When we were kids, it was like a one-year period. where yeah. it, it, when it le- before After it left theaters, but before it showed up on home video. And now yeah. it's day and date, same. There's, there's, if, you, if, you, if word of mouth gets out about this movie and what's in it, a lot of people are going to say, I don't want to see that. And they won't. And listen, this is not for everybody. There are going to be people who just cannot. Even <laughs> no, if, even if they how wild and weird and even and if they're, even even if they're entertained, is. I know some people who just refuse to believe James Wan is in on this joke. He knows it's funny. Mm. He also knows it's exciting and scary and all that good stuff too. But he also knows it's pretty funny. Mm. Um, and those people will often kind of tank this opening because there's just sort of this general sense of audiences were mixed. Uh, but because so many people have a lot of random access to it now and can watch it without having to go out of their way to give a weird thing a chance, mm. they're just giving this weird thing a chance. And I think a lot of people are really appreciating it. And I think that's great. Yeah. There's something that's really... I, I, I Growing up, watching people like even venerable critics like Siskel and Ebert. And we've talked about this before. Mm. Siskel and Ebert, by and large, great critics. Not the best horror critics, generally speaking. They really there was a lot that they wrote off out of hand. Well, they didn't like uh, they didn't like the. You and I were raised on like slasher movies, and they weren't yeah. fond of those. Uh, Roger Ebert famously referred to them as dead teenager movies. Mm. He wasn't fond of movies where characters exist to be murdered, and he yeah. does have a point uh, about sort of how how vapid the setup is. But but uh, that's all he can. Th- but that's all he could think about. He couldn't think about them on mm. other angles a lot of the time, which pissed me no, off. No, and and you know and yeah. he's. Reviewing some, uh, you know, Friday the Thirteenth sequels, he doesn't necessarily have he to. He reviewed some Halloween but, movie once, where he instead of reviewing the movie, he just talked about what he was thinking about instead of the movie. And yeah, I'm like, dude, fucking is... watch the movie, <laughs> Roger. Come on, that's an approach, though. If a movie is not, if a movie's not grabbing you, then you know, what are you going to say it's, about but it? But it's just, it's. I, I disagree. I think that's the job, though, and I don't think it's the hardest job in the fucking world. <laughs> it, it, listen, yeah. reviewing a movie that you don't have any passion for or that you're not in. 
That's not the best part of the job. No, that, that's but the, it is that's the, the hardest job. part, part but it's, of the job. But it's the part of the job you Even should be able to do. And well, I, the, I get the hardest the, part is actually like sitting through a movie you just loathe. I'd rather I'd rather write write frustratingly write a review I have little to say in mm. than watch a film that's just giving me hives. Mm. I'm not. I'm honestly not sure I agree with you. I might go the other way on that. Mm. But either way, those are not the best days. Mm. Um, but I digress. Uh, my point is this. I watched a lot of film critics, and I see them today. Film critics who just aren't super into the horror genre. Maybe they don't really follow it. Maybe they don't fully understand it. And they review horror movies anyway, mm. which is fine, by the way. Mm. It's People should review movies outside of their wheelhouse because we need other perspectives. But there's this vague sense of, and sometimes very specific sense of condescension that mm. comes out of it. And it has really hurt a lot of genre films, particularly horror movies. Uh, over the years and it has taken a really long time for those films to find an audience as a result and it always pissed me off and frankly it's one of the main reasons why i wanted to become a film critic <laughs> so you could so we could skip that part r- rebut the the, not even the re- voices of your past not, not not rebut but just like hey i'm gonna be a critic who considers that these things might be good in the first place hmm. doesn't necessarily mean they are not giving anything a free pass but i want to be someone who actually is willing to consider this thing is fucking weird what if it's great? We need to ask that question instead of going, whatever. And malignant is the kind of weird that is fucking great. Yeah, it, it deals with, um, it mentions by name some actual real life, like psychological and medical uh, things mm-hmm. Yeah, that are not at all don't resemble portrayed. reality whatsoever. Um, I, I actually saw your quote on Twitter, which mm. I think is very apt. Uh, th- this is, it, it is to psychology what the Furious movies are to physics. Like, yeah. And those, to be fair, Malignant just, doesn't have a very good grasp of physics either. No, I, it, <laughs> I, I did like its sense of place. I like yeah. sort of its dreary Seattle locale. Yeah. And they uh, even incorporated the underground catacombs of Seattle, which mm-hmm. is a, a tourist attraction. You can see I, sort of the old old city. I, I wish they'd the, done the more with that. They introduced that idea of. and they don't really delve. And I thought that they could have done so much more with it, but they introduced a lot of ideas that they just yeah. sort of spit, spit fast yeah. in this movie. Well, I feel like a lot of these things are red herrings, you know, even mm-hmm. calling it a giallo is kind of a red herring, you yeah. know, de- dealing with, Oh, and here's all these underground catacombs under yeah. Seattle. Will this be important? No, we will go in a totally different direction. Fuck you. Um, I kind of admire that. Um, yeah, this movie is rather defiantly not about things. Like, and I kind of, again, I, I prefer, and we're going to talk about Kate and a man. That's a movie that I think is mm. trying so hard not to be about things that it's missing the thing it's obviously about. Malignant, like it touches upon psychological issues. It touches upon, um, really terrible, uh, uh abusive relationships. Mm. Um, it's not interested in them. And it's not trying to be about them. It's trying to weave a tapestry of madness in front of you and then just play. And I think there's room for that. And I think this is a movie that is super duper weird, super duper fun. Uh, Kudos to Annabelle Wallace for keeping a straight face through it. (laughs) Like, oh my God, some of the stuff she's expected to do is fucking great. Um, whoever is responsible, there's a, um, oh, maybe there's names here on here somewhere. Well, whoever the, is responsible for the physicality of oh, the killer. Uh, her name is Marina Mazeppa. She was yeah. a, a, she's a dancer and contortionist. Yeah. She was on uh, America's Got Talent, apparently. Yeah. Um, they're amazing. <laughs> they are amazing. And they do, they create a very distinct horror movie villain. Mm-hmm. 
that I think is going to be very, very popular in the costume scene. Yeah. 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 Uh, but, uh, yeah, what a, what just a nifty flick. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, is it James Wan's best film? Maybe not, but it might be his most fun. Uh, this is one that I that I watched twice, and I and that I never, does I never, not happen. No, uh, we're we're critics. We don't get to rewatch films. That's insane. Uh, yeah. This idea of people who are committed to seeing like certain blockbusters three, four times, like they buy tickets in advance before they've seen it once. I don't understand that. Uh, at all. Like I've I've only ever done that do twice. That. I did that for one of the Star Wars movies, yeah. and even then, I only did it because I forgot. I promised to see it with someone else as that, well. That's. That's happened to me a couple times where yeah. I saw a movie like twice in a day because I forgot yeah. I had yeah. promised a friend. I've seen movies multiple uh, times in theaters many, many times, but that was the only time I bought tickets in advance twice. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I've I've never done that, but yeah. I have. Uh, it's been a it, it's really really rare that I'll watch a movie for a second time. Yeah, uh, ever, you just anymore. don't have time anymore. Yeah, uh, so I'm, I'm watching films for work. I I don't have time to yeah. watch, rewatch movies. Uh, but yeah, I I. Uh, I told my wife that it was really, really uh, kind of a bonkers movie, and if she wanted to see it, I'd, I'd sit through it again. And did she enjoy it? She did. Yeah, I'm really glad. Yeah, I had a good time. Like when when, when, all, when all of in, in the third act, when all the the crazy shit is going down, just like this, this is like a this is a real movie, right? Yeah. <laughs> yeah and not no, only is, is it a real movie, it's a real movie with a real budget put out by a major studio. Yep. This is <laughs> not the Warner kind of, Brothers film. It's not the kind, Warner Brothers. I will give Warner Brothers some credit. Warner Brothers is willing to take some risks with horror. Mm. I mean, they shoved money into Doctor Sleep, like they yeah. did. Like that was a that was a big fucking risk. And it might not it might not have seen that way, but it was. It was. A dud as well. I, oh, I loved it, but I know we're, we're gonna we're never gonna agree on that movie. That's no, fine. I, I, um, I do not like Doctor Sleep. I loved it, but we can we agree to disagree. Um, but regardless, no, we just disagree. Oh, okay, but my, my point is this: it was a big swing. Yeah, and they're not afraid to take those big swings, mm. and that's cool. Uh, I still think *Malignant* probably wouldn't have got made if anyone other than James Wan was was pitching it, <laughs> and he was just like, uh, "Oh, oh, I'm sorry. Did you want *Aquaman* two to make money? Because oh. I will half-ass this shit if you do not let me make *Malignant*." And they're like, Fine. "All right, tell me the plot again." <laughs> okay, Fine. no, seriously, tell me the plot again. <laughs> also, *Aquaman* stealth suit. What, yeah. what, what? Yes, it's a black suit in the desert. He wears it underwater. Come I on. know, but this, I love it. The production still that they gave. Here's Aquaman in his stealth suit. He's so in the he, desert he's in, a, in black, a black suit. Black suit no, against like, all these like bright I, yellow sand. And I love it when people <laughs> responded to me on Twitter. It's like, oh, you know, it's a promotional still, right? I'm like, yes, I know it's a promotional still. I also know that that's how they chose to introduce the stealth suit, not being stealthy, also, and that's uh, kind of funny. Uh, a brief aside, we've kind of come full circle on superhero costumes. Mm-hmm. Uh, in uh, when X Men came out yeah. in two thousand, uh, there was a, a conscious decision to move away from the comic book look. Mm-hmm. They, they, There's they, no they, way it could possibly look good on camera. Well, this, this is this is yeah, this is an introduction. They uh, maybe they tried different kinds of costumes, but they decided to go for something a little bit like muter and hip for two thousand. Yeah. So they they were going for Matrix vibe, yeah, kind of a kind of a Matrix yeah. vibe. So they they gave them like. Yeah, these kind of black leather looking outfits yeah. and the gloves. So they were all wearing black. Yeah. Fine. I think it looks fine. It's a, it was a good aesthetic, yeah. actually. I'll, um, I'll let that one go. Yeah, and and okay. they, they even made a joke about it in the movie. It's like, you guys go, uh, Wolverine puts on that thing. He asks, Scott, this, this outfit is so stupid. And uh, another character says, well, would you prefer yellow spandex? Mm-hmm. Alluding to the costume he wore in the comics. And then in X-Men First uh, Class, they did the yellow and blue, and it actually looked fine. Well, they had finally... Uh, 
there were some like innovations with the way the design was happening with superhero outfits. So they, they found a way over the course of like the Avengers films to make a lot of those really silly costumes look at least wearable. Mm -hmm. They don't necessarily look all that graceful. I still think Captain America's like face mask is totally useless, but fair um, enough. But like, but like, I think the trick uh, is they, they realize how important texture is because if you don't have texture, then it just feels like you're wearing a spirit Halloween costume, even no matter how nice it is. I think the X-Men thing was trying to make it look like real uh, cloth. And now we're, we did the Aqua, the first Aquaman movie where he wears that silly golden green outfit. And oh, he looks so, great. It, he looks great because he has got, because he's Jason Momoa. He's got a great physique and you could put him in a potato sack and he looked fine. That is the uh, secret. Yeah. The, se- the secret is, <laughs> the secret that. is I'm dressing Jason Momoa. That's how you make the Aquaman <laughs> outfit look good. Uh, but yeah, now we're like, okay, well, those are a little too bright and garish. We're going to go a little bit darker now. And we come right back around to X-Men. We're going to do the, mm-hmm. the black outfits now. Whatever. Everybody's going to be wearing dark and solid Ugh, colors. Damn it. We did that with uh, the, the Vision robots. Like, mm-hmm. now he's, he's not bright, colorful anymore. Now he's like pale white, just from head to toe. Yeah, whatever. Anyway, but, uh, <laughs> they, also, they also managed to put him in the original outfit in that show. Oh, like, uh, yeah. like and like the red and the the green and everything like that, and the like the, well, the it was boxer red and green in, in the uh, no, but like the the, the original original costume, like they actually there was Ooh. it was a gag. Mm. You didn't watch it was it was fine. No. Um, I'm sure it was hilarious. It was that show was actually pretty good. But anyway, uh, we should move on. Let's talk about the new film on Netflix, the new action thriller starring Mary Elizabeth Winstead, Kate. It's about a woman named Kate, and then she like. Does some light reading? No, it's not not about somebody who does light reading. Uh, light reading. Uh, this is uh, from the director of The Huntsman: Winter's War. Oh, is that what he was from? Yeah, <laughs> I thought that name looked familiar. Yeah, Holy his crap. name is Cedric Nicholas Troyan, and um, yeah, this is about Kate, and Kate is an assassin, mm. and she travels to Japan to do assassinating. And uh, her handler is played by Woody Harrelson, and she even, like all assassins, has no qualms about murdering any number of adults, but one rule, no kids. Sometimes Mm -hmm. it's also no dogs. Here, there's no mention of dogs, but no kids. Sometimes it's no women, no kids. So yeah, sometimes yeah. it's no women. There's always there's always a line, and that way you can just say like, "Listen, oh, they're, they're, they're listen, assassins, they, but they have a moral listen, code. They've slaughtered hundreds of people, but uh, you know, if you're if you're not 18 yet, it's like it's totally fucked up. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's like <laughs> like once you hit 18, okay. kill them. <laughs> like, okay. the- Happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> But why is this at your 18, on your 18th birthday? You get an arrow through the eye socket. It's this weird fixation we have where we want to tell stories about people who are hired assassins because that's an interesting job and mm-hmm. it is prone to action sequences. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense to write a movie around it. The problem mm-hmm. is, is that they're mostly amoral people. So you have to give them some kind of code in order for the audience to go, well, at least there's some things they won't do. There's, there's some but, humanity to them. Right. And fair enough. But after you've seen this, exact same code come up over and over again it just starts feeling more like a cliche than it is actually something organic and indeed that's a line of dialogue in kate one rule no kids yeah um i would argue that being an assassin is not an interesting profession anymore because (laughs) if the movies have taught me anything it's that maybe a third of the world's population are assassins now the ending of Uh, john wick chapter two kind of ruined everything about (laughs) assassins like every single human being in new york was an assassin waiting there's not enough work to go around if there were as many assassins in the world as the movies would have me believe 
no presidential administration in any country would be longer than a week. Yeah. Like all the, the world leaders would just every, constantly be every murdered off. Every CEO would be, would be, You'd be removed dead. immediately. Yeah, there'd, there'd be no, yeah. Nothing holding anything yeah. in place. There's just, it, it would just, it'd be such a weird society mm. if, if, if the, if, like assassins were as ubiquitous as Uber drivers. Like you just couldn't do yeah. it. But uh, the assassin in question this time is indeed Kate played by Mary Elizabeth Winstead. And um, uh, at a point in the movie, she is given a radioactive isotope mm. and it poisons her. And she has a couple hours to live. She has a day. Which is a day. She has a, approximately a day. Mm. And they just say, so, uh, so yeah, um, <laughs> you're going to die really bad. And there's this weird bit where they're like, well, we tested to see what kinds of radiation was given to you. It was this, this, this. And she was like, it was polonium two. It was like polonium two fifteen. Polonium, yeah. yeah it she, knew, she knew it was polonium. No, but I love is that it's polonium two fifteen. And then the guy says, no, it was polonium two oh six. And she's like, oh, Oh, those fuckers. Like, that's <laughs> even worse. What's that uh, worse? It makes such a weird thing to make a plot point out of. Uh, but uh, she was there to murder some uh, some mobsters. Yeah, and so Yakuza she, uh, some Yakuza, uh, bosses. Yeah. Yakuza crime bosses. And so she, with the little time she has left, decides to go on a, a revenge vendetta. And, yeah. uh, so it's Crank... And she with all, a little, it's actually it's crank hmm. meets protege meets gunpowder milkshake meets in any assassin yeah. movie really this this film has nothing original in its head whatsoever every every no. single the only thing that, that kind kind of if at all sets it apart is the violence level in the action sequences is turned up a little yeah. And Mary Elizabeth Winstead gets like a lot of blood caked yeah. on her face. It never quite goes like to like the raid levels, but mm. as an action movie, this is quite respectable. Um. Yeah, so basically it's 24-hour killing spree. She ends up, uh, she's trying to find this, like, this crime boss who has gone to the mattresses. He could be anywhere. Uh, nobody knows how to find them. And the only person she knows might be able to find him is a teenage girl who, <laughs> 18 months ago, Kate killed her father in front of her. And the girl doesn't know that, but mm -hmm. Kate does, and it's awkward. Uh, so they end up teaming up because it turns out that uh, there's actually a bit of a coup going on inside their crime family and they want to kill everyone in this guy's bloodline so that they'll have no claim to their crime mm. throne. So now they're both in this together. Will they kill a bunch of people? Yes. Will the action sequences be kind of cool? A little up and down, but more good than bad. Mm. Um, will the cinematography be good? Uh, yeah. Actually, this is a really good looking movie. I actually mm. like the lighting in this movie a lot. I think it looks real. I think it's basically like, hey, did you like the lighting in Blade Runner 2049? Cool. You want to see an action movie that's uh, like after, uh, bisexual lighting <laughs> everywhere and like kind of some cool camera angles and shit on uh, action? After yeah. Atomic Blonde and Gunpowder Milkshake and... Uh, what? You, you, and and uh, what was it? Um, Vegas of the Dead? The, Army of the Dead. Army of the Dead. I don't think Army of the uh, Dead's the best example. I don't think that's a very good looking movie. But. No, but they all have... Uh, they're all borrowing from a kind of a similar aesthetic right. and... Um, and it's big. It's becoming a style now, and yeah. a, a lot of a lot of a lot of different filmmakers are now tapping into the same sort of thing. So I'm, I'm not getting dazzled by this. I'm anymore. not saying I'm dazzled. I'm saying yeah. I do like it. I'm okay. saying it is an aesthetic that I enjoy, and I think this movie does it well. Um, there's very little to this film. Hmm. Uh, on its very, surface, very little to this. This film. has this isn't. I, I will. I will. Uh, I will say this. I think uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead is really good. She's given a character with almost nothing to her, really. And she, she's bringing a lot of verve 
to everything, even the clunkiest line of dialogue. She is trying really hard to make work. She, we've yeah. seen her in Birds of Prey. We know she can carry an action sequence. She does it here. But, uh, yeah, she's given a, a, a role that... Like, you can imagine Jason Statham doing this role and it being crap. <laughs> like, and not, not like in Crank, where it's kind of funny, or well, Crank 2, where it's just fucking awful. But, uh, it, you know, like, if you're playing this straight, it's kind of crap. Unless Mary Elizabeth Winstead does it. Then she almost makes it work. Yeah. Kudos for her. That's impressive. Uh, Mary Elizabeth but, Winstead is... Um... She she's sort of been growing her career over the years. She's um, mm. she was the manic pixie dream girl and Scott Pilgrim. That might be mm. one of her high profile roles. Who was in Death Proof? Mm-hmm. She, uh, her best performance was in that film All About Nina. Did you see All About Nina? I don't think I saw that one. It's a she plays a stand up comedian in that one, and oh. she's like legit good as a stand up comedian. That's cool. And uh, she she has a cool. yeah, and she's like dealing with a lot of trauma, and she's having a romance uh, with a man played by Common. Common is not good in that movie. Ah, oh, that's too bad. Like Common's good. Like he's playing sort of like broody and. Tense roles here. He's asked to play sort of like a, a warm, cool. sensitive guy, and he can't do that. Oh, that's weird. It's a shame. Um, but she, yeah, she's really, really good, and she's uh, I think growing more sophisticated as a performer as mm. as her career has evolved. And uh, this is seems like something she's trying out. Yeah, she was in Birds of Prey. Now she's going to do sort of a little bit more of extreme action and do like yeah. a lot more heavy stunt work. Can I branch out mm. into the action? And, and, and I don't she, think she's very respectable she's, at it. Yeah, she very was uh, committed it. to it, and she did that stuff well. Uh, but frankly, who cares when it's in service of nothing? Mm-hmm. This kind of movie makes me hate the genre because they're not doing anything to dazzle me. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're I, not I, subverting our expectations. They're mm-hmm. not trying to add. They're not even like trying to like the action sequences are good to and occasionally really good. Uh, but they're never doing anything where it's just like we're going to reinvent this or we're going to show you something you've never seen before. Yeah, it, that's is, not what they're doing, and that's all sucks. stuff I've seen before. So but it when, doesn't suck, but it's when, mediocre, and that's annoying. When a very good action, you call them very good, and they, I guess they're impressively choreographed so yeah. on a surface level. They're they're, they're, fine. they're they're very well done, but they never really. They, they never really pop, do yeah, they? They're this, just well done. And and uh, I've, I've heard it said before, and I kind of disagree with this sentiment, mm. uh, that the key to a really good action sequence is you have to care about the characters. And I don't think that's necessarily true. Mm. Uh, if you're going to have a really impressive, like, look at something like The Raid. You barely know those people, but the action is spectacular. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's not ne- that we That's know- one of the reasons why I'm not as big a fan of The Raid as other people, but no. anyway... Uh, or, or um, you know, Mad Max Fury Road. We don't know everything about all of those guys, but we want to see them flying around. Um, well, it's not about knowing everything about yeah. everybody. It's being invested in the characters at the center of the action. Mm. And that's the thing I think is the thing. It's not about liking them. Well, It's not about okay. loving them. It's about being invested in what's I, going on I don't, and what they're up to. I don't think we need to be invested in what's going on, is my point. Really? I don't think we need to care about who those people are or what they're up to. If they're in an action sequence, the story has stopped. And who they were before and after is irrelevant because we're kind of in a little bit of a story intermission while we have an action sequence. I and if mm, if you're going yeah, to, and if you're going to grab onto me and do something really really impressive, do something innovative with the action. Do something mm-hmm. you know Mission Impossible Fallout level. You know, put the camera in interesting places. Mm-hmm. If somebody's in a car crash, it doesn't matter who they are. I'm going to relate to that because I understand what it's like to roll around on the street or you know under. Yeah, be hurt in a car wreck. Yeah, and uh, granted, but I just feel like I feel like what we're talking about kind of is like mm. 
the two different kinds of like musicals. Mm-hmm. There's the musical where the story stops so we can sing and it doesn't really matter what the song is about. We're just yeah. here to see a performance or watch people do a song about whatever. Yeah. And then there's the, the movies in which the songs are fully integrated into the narrative. Oklahoma was the turning point. Oklahoma is a great example of this. Um, like, so there's a difference between Oklahoma and like the great Ziegfeld. Anything goes. Anything goes is fine. Um, fair enough. Um, I don't think it's, you say that like that's, I I don't think it's an altruism. Hmm. I think there's two different ways to do it. I think Hmm. you can do this sort of stunt spectacular, everything stops so you can do something cool. That's a common thing in like a James Bond movie, Hmm. for example. Doesn't matter what's going on, James is going to like jump a car off a bridge, it's going to spin twice in the air and land in one shot. And that's going to be amazing in and of itself and has nothing to do with anything. Hmm. Fine. But here, where everything is like tight knit and stuff, I think you want, you want to accomplish both things. And I don't think it's, too much to ask mm. for an action sequence to at the very least feed into the narrative. I think you want things, the characters who speak in action mm. to have something to say with action here again, this well, is, there's, this but is, in a movie like Kate, nothing's being communicated. I'm so trying to get so to that. Yeah. Um, the movie is trying to be this incredibly generic, Assassin starts regretting their life, has feelings, and tries to do the right thing for once. Well, while which, she's facing mortality, which yeah. we've, which Charles Bronson has done that mm-hmm. shit. Like this, this goes back a long fucking time. This is a samurai story in some ways. This has been done. Uh, Westerns have done this shit. That's not enough, mm. unless you're really really insightful and have something really big to, to explore with it. Mm. And they don't, uh, yeah, they, there was, they started to hint at something very fascinating about okay. two thirds of the way through the movie. Cause, uh, Woody Harrelson plays her handler and she has accumulated, uh, the, the teenage daughter of one of her victims. And, uh, she mm. and the teenage daughter spend a portion of the movie kind of bonding a little bit. The, the teenager is really, uh, really mm. kind of excited about the world of, of assassins. And, yeah. Uh, well, and she's, never, she's, she's never really had familial uh, connections. Everyone in her family yeah, has always so, been very monstrous. And so, so her, at the very uh, least, this assassin's yeah, spending K- time with Kate's, her. Kate's like, only father figure we see in flashbacks mm. was Woody Harrelson, who is uh, her, her trainer. And we get to see her as a kid like yeah, doing gun been, training. He's been stuff. training her to kill since she was a little kid. And uh, it, it, there's this tantalizing moment where it looks like he's going to uh, induct... The, the teenage character. Yeah. And he's going to sort of like keep the cycle going. And I thought that they were getting at this sort of thing where uh, the cycle of assassins continues because they are in this twisted way, kind of passing their violence onto other people kind of unwittingly. Yeah. And that could be interesting, but then it doesn't say anything about that. It stops short and actually doesn't have anything insightful to say. And it just goes into a really dull action climax where there's violence and people kill each other. For me, what I felt like the movie was the closest thing this movie had to any sort of actual statement. Mm -hmm. It seems like it's an accident and it's basically, uh, here is a story about an American assassin, Mm -hmm. a white person in Japan killing Japan. Like they're just doing nothing but killing Japanese people Mm And they're and she's doing it in a lot of very particular locales. Like there's this bit where she goes to uh, a club and there's a no performance. N O H. It's a particular Japanese Kabuki, performance. Yeah. yeah. Um, she goes in there and she kills everybody. And like there's this weird bit even right at the beginning where it's like the movie doesn't seem to understand even what it's doing. Yeah. About it doesn't seem to understand Japanese culture at all. And I am no expert on Japanese culture, but I know enough to know that this movie knows less. 
uh, because there's this whole <laughs> bit where they're doing this really incredible no performance, and then the camera pans over to this table, this mm. dinner table, and most of the people at the table are seated, turned away from the performance. What the fuck kind of dinner theater is this? <laughs> Who does that? That's stupid. Uh, like it's there's, uh, there's been a one of the cliches I've seen in a lot of uh, American films is this. Uh, this cliche, this stereotype that uh, Asian culture is crazy and this sort of othering of Asian cultures. And And that's something Kate does. Very much so. That's what Uh, I'm getting at. Like these kind of racist tropes. They want to exploit the differences that Mm. we would see uh, in viewing Japan's underworld Mm. from what we would see in American movie, but they have nothing to say about that. They have nothing interesting to provoke about that. There's, um, yeah, it, it, it doesn't even really... There's, there's like, a bit where, like, uh, uh, Mary Elizabeth Winstead's, like, on a rooftop about to, like, snipe someone from a roof. Mm-hmm. And behind her, like, sprayed out on, uh, like, projected onto a skyscraper is a bit from Tokyo... It's, like, anime from Tokyo Ghoul, which mm-hmm. is a particular anime series. Uh, what's the connection? I cannot think of a fucking thing. It feels like it's just, here's something yeah, Americans might know. And that's what it feels like. Here's, here's stuff about Japan Americans might know... But we're not going to give you any insight to that. We're not going to give you even any particular meaning about what happens when someone comes in and wreaks havoc. We're not going to talk about the interesting sort of give and take that has been take going on between Japanese and Western culture mm. and how there are certain uh, uh, aspects of each that have been appropriated purely stylistically. Uh, we're not doing any of that. We're just not thinking about what we're doing. Mm. That sucks. It's Mm. not the end of the world, but it's also crap. Also, uh, uh, the the movie, there's the the treatment of the movie's one gay character, who is, of course, super evil, is not great. Um, there's a lot going on here that, that doesn't really work. And I realize, and someone took me to task for this, so I want to make it clear. I was way too kind on the movie The Protégé. Mm. Uh, I was focusing on it purely as a Hitman movie, and I was not thinking about the greater context enough in that film. I've thought about it. I was way too kind. And I'm watching Kate, I'm realizing that, yeah, this is that, but like times ten. Like, it's yeah, just, that's, that's it's really, this yeah. weird othering, and it doesn't really... And again, it doesn't even have anything to say about the stranger in a strange land quality to mm-hmm. it. It's just there to be a backdrop. And it's not even there to be a backdrop by someone who seems to understand that backdrop or have anything meaningful to say about mm-hmm. it or using that backdrop to tell this story. It's just there. Yeah. Um, uh, I've like- seen worse action movies, yes, but I've also seen action movies that have something on their mind. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to have a great point. I don't need a huge speech. But something, well, and, at indeed, least a perspective that is clear. Well, and indeed, if, if you're here to watch an action movie, you're here to watch the, the, the action. Yeah. Uh, and it's, uh, I think it's, it's important that if you're going to make an action movie, do good action. Yeah. Don't, and, and don't just do good action, do new action. Yeah. Because if you're just doing something that's been seen in a movie before, if you're if if you say I'm going to make an assassin movie, stop right there. Uh, yeah. The, the genre's played out, and there's no, only so I, many I, things you can do. Uh, I am because no. I'm sick of it. And, no, uh, I, not, I disagree with that entirely. There is not a, no one has done everything you can do hmm. with every genre. However, the more played out the genre is, the harder it is to make an impression. Hmm. So you need to work ten times harder 
to make it stand out and actually do something new and prove Whitney wrong. But you're not going to do that by just having someone go on a killing spree in a nightclub. I I would love to be proven wrong. Let let, let me see an assassin movie that I really, really love, but I I haven't seen one in a while. Yeah. About any, any film about an assassin. Doesn't matter how impressive your action is unless it's really impressive. Yeah. Uh, this is this is fine action. They did it okay. They did it yeah. right, but that's not enough. Yeah, it's for me. This is more mediocre than it is anything else. I think there's good bits, bad bits. Um, but uh, yeah, it's frustrating to put in all this effort. And, and you think, and by the way, when I talk about this, there's a lot of movies, good movies, about the criminal underworlds and action and assassins and shit that do have a perspective. Mm. Look at the works of Jean Pierre Melville. Mm. Look at look at something like *Les Samurai*. Scorsese for look, look, look at yeah. John Woo. John Woo uses a lot of those action movie tropes to explore often uh, like the the depth and, and uh, uh, fragility and violence inherent and male relationships. Like mm. He's done that a lot. Like a bullet in the head. Look at the killer. Um, it, again, it doesn't have to have a major point to make, but it has something on his mind, and he's using the story to explore that. This is. Again, I've seen worse, but this just isn't enough, and that's a shame. Mm. Uh, and then, lastly, a movie I did not see, and I'll oh. let Whitney uh, take point on it because it would be weird if I did. <laughs> uh, tell me about the Voyeurs. Uh, the Voyeurs is a Canadian film. It's on Amazon right now, uh, and it is about uh, a young couple who've just moved into this brand new, very ritzy high rise. She's an ophthalmologist, uh, and or she's an, I guess an ophthalmological my logical assistant so she works in an ophthalmological office uh mm-hmm. he's uh it's eyes right eyes, yeah, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. Uh, she, right. she works on she's an eye doctor got it and uh he is a musician and they have discovered when they look out of their high rise into the next high rise over they can see right into their neighbor's window all over window stuff and um they begin to take an interest because they are very attractive people uh he is a professional photographer she is a model and when she leaves, he is shooting models in his apartment and also having affairs with them. And they don't know if she knows or not. They get really, really involved. And uh, Pippa, the uh, the woman in this couple, is particularly interested. And she seems to be taking, uh, getting a, a good deal of sexual charge living across the way from this uh, this uh, cad who's been uh, having sex with all these models. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, they become very obsessed. They go over to their apartment at one point in disguise for a Halloween costume party and they wear masks so they can kind of infiltrate. They plant a bug in their apartment so they can hear what they're saying as well. And uh, so they, they become very, very obsessed with being voyeurs. Once you, once you start these, planning uh, a bug, you think you're crossing a line. Oh, they've no, this, yeah, this, yeah. Movie, this movie crosses many, many lines. Okay. Um, I'll stop right here and say, um, if you really, really miss, like, mid to late 90s erotic thrillers this mm. is that huh. un, un uh, apologetically and unabashedly this is all about sex lust and nudity uh which is three things we don't see a lot of in mainstream american cinema these days yeah. this is sleazy trash and i like that about it yay <laughs> cool. uh, yeah, uh, the, the story continues apace. Uh, the uh, model who lives in the apartment across the way ends up visiting the, the eye doctor's office. And so they and she they actually she hits it off with the main character. So they start becoming kind of friends in this weird way. Mm-hmm. Now she's in this ethical dilemma. Does she reveal that uh, the husband has been cheating on her or mm-hmm. does she keep it a secret? 
there's a little bit of sexual chemistry between the two women. You think that might be going somewhere for a second. And then, of course, there's several bonkers twists. Needless to say, a lot of people are going to end up with their clothes off. And uh, by the time we reach the last scene, uh, it's going to go all the like full bore, full bore tales from the crypt yes. in terms of like... Uh, uh, twisted shit that starts happening. You are really um, selling me on this. <laughs> uh, yeah, this is a film that is predicated on its sexuality and its lust and its sexual charge. Uh, what with the prevalence of the PG-13 rating in the United States, a lot of films can be seen as kind of prudish. And uh, there have been tomes written already about how a lot of mainstream American blockbusters don't have sexuality in them. Uh, and some people say that as a big problem because human sexuality is a part of our species. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a driving force. Yeah. And it's and when you ignore it completely, it, mm. I don't know, it feels like... So, it feels like something's kind of missing. Yeah, uh, maybe not every single mm. time, but just an aggregate. It's just like, yeah. wow, this never comes up anymore? No, uh, no Okay. But this is also a, a case of, you know, everybody's like the hottest possible thing. Uh, and the by main, the way, and by, to be clear, not yeah. everybody has the same sexual drive. Some people are oh, asexual, then, of course. But it's still a lot of people yeah, well, have it, them. And it's weird when they don't come it, up ever. It would be nice to see it in movies more, is my yeah. point. And uh, the, the main character, her name is Pippa. She's played by an actress named Sydney Sweeney, who is in that TV series Euphoria. I didn't see it. Uh, nor I. Um, She's also a professional model, and she's supposed to be playing, like, the mousy one. <laughs> so, you know, it's one, nice. of, one of those things where yeah. we're going to take one of the most attractive people in is the world. Gonna, does she have and glasses try... and a ponytail? She has a ponytail. Uh... And, and, yeah, and she, she wears less less exciting makeup, I guess, and, like, a raincoat. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Justice Smith plays her husband. Uh, ben Hardy plays the, the caddish photographer, who's sort of like a really bratty Dan Stevens type. Uh, Dan Stevens can play a brat, but, you know, he's brings a little bit of adult energy. This guy's just a, a complete sleaze. And uh, the, the supermodel wife is played by Natasha Liu Borditzo. Mm. Uh, she's not an actress I'm familiar with. Um, but yeah, this has got a, a lot of really nice photography, a good sense of uh, space and place. It's uh, shot in, I think, in Montreal. And uh, it has a really good sense as to where the apartments are. And I think this is something filmmakers kind of crib directly from rear window mm. where we know exactly, if you think to of rear window, you can think of that entire um, yeah. building complex. They're the very clear about the space. Yeah, yeah. Where, where they are in relation to one another. So I think yeah. if you're going to, this, this film also does that and does it really well. When in doubt, if you're going to steal, steal from Hitchcock. Yeah. Yeah. Steal, steal from a good source at least. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. All right. Well, damn, it sounds good. But yeah, it's, it's, it's really thrilling. And, um, uh, I, I hesitate to call it a horny movie because that's, that's a, that's code. Horny means it contains attractive people or they, they display a little bit of lust. Horny suggests lust, but not action. Exactly. Yeah. This has the, the deed on camera. Okay. This is a a a lustful movie. Yeah, Yeah. it is. It is a lusty movie. It is a a fleshy movie. It is a sweaty movie. Nice. Uh, it's, it's meant to instill lust in the audience. And I feel like a lot of filmmakers maybe in fear of being perceived as sleaze as being seen as sleazy, don't put a lot of outright lust in their films. And that might be why we, we haven't been seeing it in a lot of mainstream cinema. Mm -hmm. Uh, But this film is not afraid to do that. The voyeurs is right up horny. I think what we've discovered this Mm. week is that if you're going to do a genre film, like an Mm. exploitation type film, uh, take it far. Take yeah. it far, and if you want to not say anything meaningful, don't make it serious. 
Mm. If you make it serious, we're going to want to take it seriously, and then we're going to explain why you didn't take it seriously well. If you go completely bonkers and unapologetic and wild, superficial, and weird, we will go with you, and we will be like, yay! (laughs) So let's review some movies on the critically acclaimed scale. Uh, Our critically acclaimed scale goes thusly. Uh, An average movie gets a C, because C means average. Some good, some bad, not all great, not all good, not Mm. all bad. C- is below average. We don't recommend those movies. There might not be a complete wash, but we just generally don't recommend them. Or they could be absolute stinkers. Anything gets covered, anything in that gamut gets Mm. covered in C-. And C- is above average. We genuinely recommend it. They are above average. Everything from quite good to legitimately brilliant. Mm. Uh, On that note, The Voyeurs, Whitney. Um, I'm going to give it it a C+. I really dug it. I really dug it. It, it. Like I said... Sleazy trash, yeah. but I don't mind sleazy trash. I respect sleazy trash, especially when they're going for that kind of vibe. Sleazy trash can be good, and I think they uh, they played it off well with a lot of really kind of wild twists at the end. Mm. Um, it's it's better than some of those Red Shoe Diaries movies. I'll tell you that. No, you remember them better than I do. Um, all right, let's talk about uh, Kate. Mm. Kate is a C minus. Mm. I, I did not like Kate. I was just depressed and dismayed by. How unambitious and mediocre the film was. I I I'm torn because it's definitely not a C plus. That's for sure. Uh-huh. Um, but there's enough in it that I did like. Again, I like the lighting. I think the action sequences are good, occasionally great, mm. and I think Mary Elizabeth Winstead really, really grounds it. But it's also so convinced of its seriousness that the fact that it has nothing to say and is directly ignoring mm. the things that it's accidentally saying. Really drags it down, so I'm gonna give it. A, okay, I'm gonna give it a high C minus. No. <laughs> okay. right, I'm gonna. There might be some people who get something out of this, but I don't think you're gonna get enough to make it really worth it. I will say this: it's better than Gunpowder Milkshake. Uh, um, sure, yeah, yeah, because yeah, Gun Gunpowder Mi- Milkshake had that kind of that preciousness to it. Just that was empty a little style. But empty yeah. style. Here, it's like at the very least. The baseline of Cade is uh, mediocre stuff we've seen before, but it's not like empty. Uh, and then lastly, Malignant. Malignant, that's a C plus. I dug it a lot. Malignant it's is so a, much fun. Such a C plus. It is a kooky, weird, mm. wild ride. Some people are some people are not going to be on its wavelength, or maybe it'll take them a while, or maybe they'll realize that the things that they didn't like about it mm. are the reasons everyone else likes it. Yeah. Um, it's not a movie for people with very rigid ideas about what a horror movie should be. I.e., if A24 does it, it's good. Uh, no, this is a no, 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 weird, I, kooky flick. Yeah. And uh, just go for the ride. Yeah. That's that's my advice to you on like that. But I had a really, really, really fun time. Um, and that is it for Critically Acclaimed this week. Thank you, everybody, for listening. We'll be back next week with reviews of films like Cry, Macho, and uh, The Eyes of Tammy Faye, and others as well. The Cries of Tammy Faye. Uh, and uh, yeah, so uh, uh, if you want to join in this conversation, you want to tell us why we're right, why we're wrong, if you want to recommend movies, ask us for movie recommendations, ask us questions about the industry or how things are doing, you can email us. Our email address is letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. Once again, that's letters at criticallyacclaimed.net. And we might read your email in an upcoming episode of We've Got Mail. We also have a snail mail address. Mm-hmm. You can write into our P.O. box. Uh, right into the Critically Acclaimed Network, uh, P.O. Box 641-565, Los Angeles, California, 90064. Yep. Uh, and again, we might read your letter, handwritten or typed. 
on We've Got Mail. Uh, we're also on Twitter at Critic Acclaim. I'm at William Bibiani. I'm at Whitney Seibold. Very special shout out to all of our patrons over at patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. We are your hugest fans. You are incredibly important to us. And thank you so much because without you, none of our shows would exist, even the free ones. So if you want to uh, contribute to the show and if you want to get a lot of exclusive shows, uh, it for that contribution, you can head right on over to patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network you get to vote for future episodes of things you get uh podcasts about batman uh, every single film ever nominated for best picture at the academy awards uh every single episode of star trek in order we're currently uh, just getting started on the uh, well we're a decent chunk of the way into the first season of star trek the next generation well, it's season, like, a, like a fourth of the way seven or eight around there yeah, around third or fourth of the way hmm. um and uh, we do commentary tracks and uh, online hangouts which we need to schedule soon uh, for this month and uh, and the like, uh, so all of that's there. Patreon.com slash critically acclaimed network. And if you like soap, and I know you do, that's a great transition. If you've never heard our show before, uh, we have a soap store. Me and my partner M. Lampas da Silva. Head on over to Salt Cat Soap on Twitter or Instagram. You'll find a link to our Etsy store. We also just started a Facebook page. Uh, we're having a sale. If you purchase anything from our store, you will get a coupon for ten percent off a future purchase. And uh, yeah, holidays are coming, so mm-hmm. you can save that for later. It's gonna be cool. <laughs> and uh, we just released a whole bunch of new soaps in the store recently, and uh, it's uh, it's uh, a lot going on. Uh, and uh, Whitney, you also have another podcast. I do. Uh, once a week, uh, I and uh, B Peterson get together and we talk about what we saw on the streaming service Ovid. It's called All About Ovid. Uh, Ovid, O V I D, all O L L about O O B O U T. Um, <sighs> This last week, uh, we had a conversation about a film I got to see on Ovid. It took up a lot of my week because it's a five-hour and 17-minute film called Happy Hour from 2015. It's one of it's Happy Hour and five, happy, ha- happy five f- hours. Happy five hours and 17 minutes. Yeah, what the hell is um, that crap? Happy Hour is a really wonderful film about uh, four women in Japan who uh, just sort of explore their adult relationships and their relationships with uh, the people in their lives. Uh, one of them is getting a divorce. And it's not one of those uh, five-hour films where... Uh, it's not an example of slow cinema, for instance, where we're just mm. going to sort of put the camera down and watch one scene and you know, people are just going to sort of be living in it or you know, we get to see them sleep for a while. There's actually incident throughout this gigantic running time. Uh, and we have a big conversation, B and I, about uh, this this film. Uh, and yeah, we're getting together every week and we're talking about whatever we saw on Ovid just because it's such an edifying experience. Ovid has really, really great selection. Nice. All right. So everybody, thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for joining us. uh, And we will see you next time. And until then, never forget, everyone's a critic. And actually, after then, don't forget everyone's a critic. It's kind of a thing. I want to go to the Midnight Show. I'm sorry, what? Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.